Let's turn to God's Word to Romans uh, chapter 3. Jacintha, I don't have the clicker, so you can just move it on when it's appropriate, which I'm sure you'll, you'll work out. Um, can I thank those who helped on Friday with the gathering we had, which went really well. It was good to see so many people coming in at various points. And uh, also the carol service, the CU carol service, that went uh, very well too. And uh, can I thank also the Duttons, uh, David and Marjorie, for having the students out there on uh, Friday evening. It's, as always, at this time of year, it's a very busy time. And it's great to see people uh, sharing and being involved. Now, there are... Um, Many great questions in this world, many great puzzles. Some people like solving puzzles. I'm not a big fan of Sudoku, but when I go to it, I just do the easy one, because that's fairly straightforward. And my daughter, oldest daughter, taught me how to do the middle ones, uh, and I have no possibility of doing the hard ones. I just don't have the brain for it. And crosswords, I don't get at all. Cryptic ones, uh, I'm not really good at puzzles. I can do detective mysteries. I've usually worked it out by about halfway through. Uh, Morse or something like that. Uh, so puzzles, there are lots and lots of different puzzles, but I'm going to set before you a couple of puzzles just now that we're going to look at and answer from God's Word. Uh, one may not appear immediately uh, obvious to say there are, maybe there, there are those kinds of puzzles. There are puzzles if you are um, Theresa May, how do you uh, keep the border open in Northern Ireland and leave the uh, European Union. That's a puzzle. Uh, there's a puzzle, how do you buy Christmas presents for everyone and stay out of debt? Uh, some of you are at the stage just now where you're dreading receiving presents because you go, oh no, now I have to buy them one. Uh, and that sometimes is a puzzle. How are you going to afford it all? But the two questions that I, I, I want to ask, and they are related but not maybe immediately so. The first is this. How do you get people to do things? How do you get people to serve? So, for example, Chris, what Chris was talking about, what can we do? Uh, um, you can guilt people. Of course you can. Um, I'm, maybe I'll mention this just now, actually. I was going to mention it later, but uh, we're looking at setting up a catering team in the church. And if anyone's interested in, in helping with that, mainly to do with the um, monthly Wednesday uh, meal that we have for the collective prayer meeting. Well, speak to me about it, but how do you get people to do it? Or in your own home, it might be, how do you get people to do something? Maybe your husband, I'm sure this isn't true of anybody here, but maybe your husband's just dead lazy, and he does, never does the dishes, uh, never helps with anything. Uh, a hoover is something that he's heard about, but never touched. Uh, ironing is something that other people do, uh, normally you, if you are uh, the lady of the home. How do you get your husband to do things? Well, normally nagging only works for a very short uh, basis of time. Maybe you can guilt him out. Maybe collapse, go to hospital. That always works wonders. Uh, maybe there's lots of things. Maybe, how, how do we get people? And in the church, how do we get people to do things? Well, we'll return to that one at the end. But there's an even bigger problem than this. And that is, how is it possible 
for God to be just and fair and to forgive people their sins. And that is a mystery that even the angels long to look into. Well, we're going to read Romans 3, and I'm going to read from verse 21, which last week we saw has been named the most important paragraph ever written in any language, anywhere, at any time. And Romans chapter 3, we're just going to look at the last two verses, but we'll read to set it in context from verse 21. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement or as the atoning sacrifice through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Well, God reveals his plan, which he had always promised in the Old Testament. Again, last week we saw that it wasn't, this is not plan B, this is what God had always planned. The center of that plan is the historical event that really happened of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through that, we get righteousness. We're made right with God by faith in Jesus, all of us, whether whatever our background. And it's by grace. Incidentally, that, that, um, the aspect of the Jew and the Gentile, it's really important. There's a, a film on at the DCA just now called Menashe. It's really unusual because it's a film about a uh, Hasidic Jew in New York. And it's filmed entirely from that perspective with Hasidic Jewish actors. Some of them didn't know they were acting, mainly because they don't have television. They don't watch television or, or cinema, so they'll never see this. It was absolutely fascinating, the lifestyle. And in one part of that film, the uh, father teaches his son, says to his son, we, you see all the different rituals, and he said, you are made clean on the inside by being clean on the outside. And that, that just really struck me. It is the very antithesis of what Paul is teaching here. He's saying, no, 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 you can, you can do all this. And there's so much to admire in that community, and yet when you look at it, and if you go and see that film, I'm not giving it away, that it's not exactly full of action um, and, and you know, everything. It's just it's a fascinating insight into a culture. But you know, I, I came away from the film quite sad because the culture ultimately is a depressing legalistic one. All that's good, the music, the Torah, the, 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 the Old Testament, it's all good, and yet it's all so oppressive. And Paul is dealing with that, and he's, he's, he's challenging that, and challenging, if you like, the, the alternative versions that people want to make themselves right with God. So, let's just go to verse 25 and the first part of that verse. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now, there's a word here. This sacrifice of atonement is translated in the NIV. Um, those who are you know, biblical scholars will know this. Will know this. There's an enormous difficulty in the word that's used, hilasterion, about how it's translated. And 
some people, because I think it, it, you could translate it almost literally as propitiation. Well, what's that? We're going to use these words. I need to explain them. It's the idea, it's an act in which you, you imagine it's the wrath of God being placed or coming towards us, and propitiation means it's turned away. Now, to some people, they hate this idea. And so they, they, they want to change what the word says. They hate the idea because it gives the wrong impression of God. It gives the impression of God as somebody who's out to get you, and he needs, you need someone to intervene to stop God getting you. It's a almost pagan concept. That's what people think, and um, people don't like it. In our, in our culture today, people don't like it. And in the churches today, people don't like it. But we'll see that I think that's a myth, misunderstanding. But most of all, that doesn't take into account, when people say they don't like it, it can't mean that. Verse 18 of chapter 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. I tell you why people don't like this. They don't like the idea of the anger of God, the wrath of God. How can God be wrathful? How can God be angry? That's not right. We're here celebrating Christmas, and Jesus is, is nice and does good things, and, and, and we can't have a God who is wrathful. Paul can't have meant that. He must have meant something else. But in Romans 1.18, he said, look, the wrath of God is already being revealed. And let me put that in our context to simply say this, why is all this bad stuff going on in the world? It's not that God is doing it, it is that God is permitting it to happen so that we can see. We, we, we sang in Psalm uh, 78, this continual pattern of rebellion against God, and then God let them, and there's, there's a verse that stuck out for me, was when he slew them, then they turned to him. And I suspect that for most of us here, in prosperity is not when we turn to God. It's when things are tough that we turn to God. And that's sometimes why God allows it to happen. So I think propitiation here is a, is a really good way of putting it. The other way, people want to change this a bit and say it's expiation, which is an act that involves sins being forgiven and wiped, wiped away. Now, um, that's like a disinfectant. It's like you've got something that's dirty, and you need to clean it, and you need to disinfect it. Now, I think that's a, it's a good way of describing what happens, our forgiveness, and so on. It's not a bad word. It's a good thing. But the trouble is, as we saw last week, that there's a problem if you, if you make it just expiation, the, the cleansing, the taking away. You see, forgiveness is good, but forgiveness, strangely enough, on its own is not enough. Forgiveness says, right, you can go. You're forgiven. But justification says you can come because the grounds on which you were condemned have been gone. It's much more radical and it's much deeper. So there's an argument between people about should we use propitiation or expiation and uh, the NIV uses the phrase uh, atoning sacrifice to indicate it's uh, for propitiation. But for me, uh, I think you can use both, and I think there's another aspect here in terms of the word that Paul uses that 
some people object to because they think it's comparing Jesus to an inanimate object. I think it's wonderful. And it's this idea of the mercy seat. So it is turning away God's wrath. It is forgiveness. But it's the mercy seat. Let me read from Leviticus. Uh, well, you see Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, first of all. Above the ark with the cherubim of the glory overshadowing the atonement cover. That's the hilostadion. That is the, the, the cover. Now, just in case you're not fully familiar with the furnishings of the Old Testament, let's read uh, of the temple. Let's read Leviticus chapter 16. And just a few verses there from verse 13. Come up on the screen. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover. Same word, okay? Above the tables of the covenant, of the covenant law, so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel." The people Paul was writing to would have known what the atonement cover was. They would have known this sacrifice of atonement. And I think that's why it's a, a good translation by the NIV. They would know what it referred to. And it was the mercy seat. And what Paul is saying is that God has provided for us this mercy seat. Now, this is not just my view. This is the view of Luther and Calvin. So if you disagree, I win. Um, you can cite Luther and Calvin. You're on your... You're well on the way. But I think it just makes so much sense. I think it's propitiation, it's expiation, but it's this picture and this symbol and this image of uh, the atonement cover. Ezekiel 43, 20. You are to take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar and on the four corners of the upper ledge and all around the rim. And so purify the altar and make atonement for it. And Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Now we know, according to Hebrews, that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin, can never atone sin. So what's happening in the Old Testament, when you read Leviticus, it's a picture. And it's a picture of what Jesus was really to do. And what this is saying is that Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus' blood is the mercy seat. You, you, you can come to the mercy seat. Jesus' blood is, is what forgives because it's the life of Jesus. It's the life of the Son of God and it's being given for us. The mercy seat in the Old Testament is the place where God takes care of his people's sins. Now we're told God presents Jesus. God gives us Jesus the forgiveness of sins, and the turning away of God's wrath. Now, for those of us who are uncomfortable with the idea of God's wrath and propitiation and so on, let me go back to that just for a second. And let me tell you what the difference is between that and the view of the pagan gods. 
The pagan gods were capricious and self-serving. They were cruel and they were wicked. They were bad-tempered. God's wrath is justice. It is not temper. God's wrath is fair. God's wrath looks at a world that's full of sin and evil and sees the abused child and sees the, the, those who are murdered and sees the violence and the cruelty and the greed and the selfishness. And he justly and rightly is angry at what he sees. Not an, angry, not an anger based out of a selfishness, but an anger based out of a purity of holiness. In the pagan culture, we propitiated the pagan gods. We offered them vegetables. We offered them animals. In pagan culture, they would offer children. They would sacrifice their children. That's not what's happening here. God propitiates himself. God gives his only son. No human sacrifice. Nothing that we could give. Nothing that you could do could atone. You could say, Lord, I've done this sin, but you know, from now on, I'm going to go with Chris every single day of the week. I'm going to go and pray at the church every day of the week. I'm going to work really, really hard. I'm going to make up for it all. And you will never make up for it. And God says, I've given my son. Now, uh, please know one of the great differences here. It, it says that God presented his a righteousness from God is being known. Verse 25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. And that's one of the most wonderful things in the whole Bible. Because the Old Testament mercy seat was behind a curtain. And the, temp, the chief priest went in once a year. Nobody saw it. And this sacrifice was made. But now we're being told that this mercy seat is brought if you like, into the public. The Old Testament mercy seat was so pure and so holy, no one could get near it. But now the temple of the curtain has been ripped in two and the mercy seat of Jesus is on the streets of Dundee. And it's just wonderful. The mercy seat of Jesus is here. So when people say, I don't like Jesus being compared to an inanimate object, I'm saying, don't you grasp what is being said. Jesus is the mercy seat and you can come to Jesus for mercy at any time. But there's a question that still remains. How can God be just and the forgiver of sins? So let's go on to the second part of that verse and verse 26. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The cross is the demonstration of God's justice, God's righteousness, God's faithfulness to his own words and standards. So, two things that Paul says here. Number one is God passed over the sins of the people before. It doesn't say that he ignored them. It doesn't say that he said forget about them. It says that he did not deal with them fully, that he justified people like David and Abraham without taking the full punishment for their sins at that time. And what was happening was it was looking forward to the cross. And that's how he says here about the cross that the penalty has been paid. So here's an amazing thing, I think. 
that Jesus, when he died on the cross, died for David's adultery, died for Abraham's lying, died. When you look through the Old Testament and you see how badly behaved the Old Testament church was, Jesus, when he dies on the cross, is cleansing all of that. And then we read that God forgives in a different way for us. We're in the same way, actually. We're going to sing the song, um, The Wonder of the Cross. And one of the great lines in that is that um, history was split in two. It was. That's the key event of history, the cross, the resurrection. History was split in two. I know that people want to talk about common era and before common era and so on. No, forget it. The cross, B.C., A.D., before Christ, in the year of our Lord, after Christ. That's the key event of human history because after that, God forgives sins of the people today, not in anticipation, but in retrospect because of what Christ has done. He is the one who is just and the one who justifies those who have faith in, in Jesus. How can God be just and forgive our sins which are against him and against his creation and against all that he has done and against his word? He can do so by punishing our sins in and through his son, Jesus Christ, whom he freely gave. He so loved us that he gave his son there's a wonderful book by James Denny called The, the, the Death of Christ, which for me is just full of such beauty about, about this. And he says this, there could be no gospel unless the righteousness of God can be given to the ungodly. There's no good news if we cannot be given God's righteousness. But there can be no gospel unless the integrity of God's character to remain, should remain. We can't have a God who says, okay, I'll forgive that one. I won't forgive that one. Just doesn't matter. I'll just make it up as I go along. God has to be fair. God has to be just. So the problem of the sinful world, as Denny says, is to unite these two things. How can we be given God's righteousness and how can God still be just? And here is the wonderful answer of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. So let's sum this up in terms of the last part of that verse. He's the one who justifies those. He's to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in God. I love uh, John Stott's summary of this. Justification is the heart of the gospel and unique to Christianity. No other system, ideology, or religion proclaims a free forgiveness and a new life to those who've done nothing to deserve it, but a lot to deserve judgment instead. On the contrary, all other systems teach some form of self-salvation through good works of religion, righteousness, or philanthropy. Now, let me just stop there for a minute. Those, you know, you know what bothers me about Islam? It's not the threat of Islamic terrorism. It's not the kind of different teachings that people can look at and say, oh, I don't like this, I don't like that. It's not the cultural stuff. I tell you, the thing that bothers me about Islam is the same thing that bothers me about the Hasidic Jews, and it's the same thing that bothers me about most forms of Christianity, and it's the same thing that bothers me about Buddhism. You know that nice cuddly religion that Western liberals love because you can do what you want? No, you can't. In Buddhism, you've got to work your way to nirvana. 
You don't just get it. You have to do it. Whereas in Christianity, God says you can do it. Christianity, by contrast, says Stott, is not in its essence a religion at all. It is a gospel. The gospel, good news that God's grace has turned away his wrath, that God's Son has died our death and borne our judgment, that God has mercy on the undeserving, and there's nothing left for us to do or even contribute. Faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. Now, Paul is so excited about this. Having lived as one of these Hasidic Jews almost, he's, he's so excited about this that he piles in language from all over the place. He, he, he's saying, look, God's righteous, but he extends his righteousness through the preaching of the cross. And this is how the cross is preached. God has redeemed. God has propitiated. God has demonstrated. So he uses the language of the slave market. God has redeemed. He uses the language of the law court. God has justified. He uses the language of the altar, the temple, the atoning sacrifice. And he says, you get this? You, you understand this? He says, I preach it to you. What happens is you get it by believing it, by accepting what Jesus has done. He's saying, I'm, I'm not saying to you, now this is what happened. Now you go out and do this and you will be able to play your part. He's saying your part has already been played. Emil Brunner has a, um, an essay kind of thing where he talks about ascent and descent. I'm not a big fan of Brunner, but I did like that uh, idea where the, every single form of religion Every single form, I cannot, and, and here's a challenge, if, you, if you've got one, let me know. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Muslims, Buddhists, liberal Christians, every single form of religion says this, climb to heaven, there's heaven, there's God, climb, climb. Biblical Christianity says, love came down at Christmas, Jesus came down, he came down, you can't climb. It's a bit like going back to the cap thing that, that with Chris. I mean, you go and visit someone. You say to someone, right, we've got to get you out of debt. You've got to work yourself out of debt. And just, you know, that's just overwhelming for people. But imagine you're in debt and someone comes and says, your debt is paid. It's done. It's paid. It's done. But don't I have to do this? No. It's done. Now, how does this apply? Well, I think it's answered the second question in terms of um, how can God be just and the justifier of those who are unjust? Well, it's through Jesus. It's through the cross. That's the answer. But what about that first question about motivating people to serve? Some Christians will say, well, why should I work? It's by faith. I don't need to do any work. It's by faith. Isn't it great? And you know, the devil is just so brilliant. He manages to get Christians to twist everything. If we, you know, I, I can guarantee it. If, if we get taught something that's really good, we can find a way to twist it in our hearts and in our minds and in our heads. The Apostle Paul is not coming to us and saying, well, salvation by faith means that works are not necessary. When James says works without, uh, faith without works is dead, Paul wouldn't turn around and say, no, no, James, you've got it wrong. He knew that that was true. And why was it dead? Because once you grasp and understand what this is, then your whole heart is changed and your motivation to work is changed and you work, if you like, almost instinctively. How will I put it this way? Imagine that you are married to somebody 
And let's go back to this, um, I don't know, doing the dishes or the hoovering or whatever it is. Whatever. And you think, oh, I have to do it because otherwise I'll get around. Or I'll have to do it because she or he will be unhappy. Or I'll have to do it because I read this book on 10 ways to be a better husband. And it said that number seven was do the dishes. So I'm going to tick that box as well. So I meet it. How? How, how does that... But what if you genuinely thought, do you know, I love this person so much because I know they love me. What can I do to help them? What can I do to encourage them? What can I do that they would like me to do? Because the first way you're thinking, what can I do so that I can get what I want? The second way, you're not thinking about what you want. You're just doing what you want, which is really to love and serve the other person. You want that with kids, you want that with friends, uh, and, and so many other ways, motivating. You want that, I think, in the church. I don't want people to serve, oh, I better do this because it's my turn on the rota, and if I don't do it, then I'll get a row. Or I better do this because I came along to a service and I heard a sermon that guilted me out. No. But neither do we want Christians to be people who just go, hey, Jesus loves me, that's fine, I'll just get on with my life. If Jesus loves you, that turns your life upside down. If you grasp that Jesus loves you, it changes everything. In a strange kind of way, sometimes it makes me feel more guilty because I look, and by your standards, sometimes I think I could go, yeah, I can pass that, I can take that box, I can do that. But when I see what Jesus has done for me, I realize what a rotten husband I am, what a rotten minister I am, what a rotten father I am, what a rotten friend I am. And you, you, just, you just, when you realize that, you think, oh, Lord, how can I end it? There's the mercy seat. You come to the mercy seat. You come to the mercy seat. It's there all the time. There's a fountain that's filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. So Hebrews puts it wonderfully. You have been set free to serve the living God. You don't have to do all these rituals anymore. You don't have to go to the temple and do this. You don't have to do all these different things. But you have been put in a place where you have a far higher standard of service and you can fulfill it because of what Jesus has done. Set free to serve the living God. I will confess that many times I thought, do I have to do this? Do I have to go to this? Do I have to, you know, I, honestly, I'm like the three-year-old spoiled child. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to go. And I build up resentments and hurts and wounds and everything else, and it's wrong. And the way for me to be cured of that is not to be nagged, but to see what Jesus has done. And there's nothing that I can do kind of makes up. Look, Jesus, you did this for me. I'll do that for you, and then we'll be square. No, I'll never ever be square. I will spend all eternity praising Jesus for something that he's done that I have never ever deserved or never can deserve. But that's how we serve him now. We serve him not trying to earn something. We serve him out of love because he loved us and gave himself for us. Everything else follows. So those of us who are Christians, let's reflect on that. Let's reflect much more on this mercy seat that is available for us. And then maybe if you're not a Christian, can I just read from John chapter 1 about Christ coming into the world? 
The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Isn't that true this Christmas? We're going to have a nativity. We're going to have a a wee play. We're going to have a crib with baby Jesus. We're going to talk about the love of Jesus, and we haven't a clue who Jesus is because we do not recognize him. We do not recognize why he came, and we do not recognize what he's done. And in so many ways, so much that goes on at Christmas in the name of Jesus is blasphemy because it's mocking. It doesn't recognize him. It's tinsel Jesus. But he came to that which was his own, but his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. To those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. You may be here as a non-Christian, and the message for you is not you are a child of God and everything's okay. The message for you is you are not a child of God, and you're lost, and you're on your way to a lost eternity. But Jesus came that you might become a child of God. He gave that right to all who received him. The carol where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. And I don't care if you've walked in off the street, you've heard about Jesus, you receive him, you become one of his people. Oh, I'm not saying your life is just going to be floating on a bed of ease after that. No, it's not. It's going to become really hard. But it doesn't matter because Jesus has loved you and given himself for you. And so those of us who are believers, let's remind ourselves of what this is. This God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He's the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. I'm justified. You're justified. You're forgiven. You're free. And you're free to serve. And then those of you who are not Christians, do you want to be a child of God? Then take Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this great gospel. Thank you. It's a gospel that you prepared before the world was even created because you knew what would happen. Thank you, O Lord, that the whole Old Testament points to Jesus and the whole New Testament speaks of Jesus and that we can rejoice at being forgiven with all your saints from old and new. Thank you that you are just and good and pure and holy, and yet you are able to forgive us because of what Christ has done on the cross. You presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Thank you for the mercy seat. We pray, Lord, that we come to your mercy seat. We ask forgiveness. We ask renewal. We ask cleansing. And we rejoice that the way to the mercy seat is not just once a year through a special high priest, but that the mercy seat is here and everywhere we go, that the curtain of the temple has been torn in two and that we have access to the living, pure, and holy God because of Christ. Lord, bless each one of us as we reflect upon this and may we live our lives in accordance with it. In your name, amen. We're going to finish by singing O Precious Sight, The Wonder of
of the cross. Precious sight, my Savior stands dying for me with outstretched hands. Uh, and let's stand and sing this to God's praise, and please remain standing for the benediction.